welcome, listeners, one and all, to another episode of the Madam's Cast. Um, I'm excited again about today's episode. I, I, I've been meaning to chat with today's guest for quite a while, actually. In fact, we we almost did it before, but we didn't quite get there. Um, but now, due to the magic of publishing, uh, a new reason to have the brilliantly talented Patrick Galbraith on the Madam's Cast has has come up. So, Patrick, I, I know you're there. I can hear you. Come and say hi. Hi, hi, Tim. It's uh, it's uh, it's it's good to good to speak. Good to speak. How where where you are? How hot is it? What sort of what sort of has it got to ten degrees yet? <laughs> well, I would go outside and check the thermometer, but the clouds of midges are so thick that I, I can't be bothered. Um, it's it, What is it today? I don't know. I mean, 20 degrees and sunny? Well, I don't like feel that. that. I, was in, uh, I was in Norfolk at the weekend and it wasn't... In fact, there was a lot of topless sunbathing going on on the beach in Norfolk, which gives you some idea of the, uh, the temperature. I hadn't seen that before. It was interesting. Um, but um, but certainly London feels uh, feels rather a lot hotter. So I don't know. What are did we you get your did you get your top off? Well, actually, you know, in protest against it all, I sat there with a uh, with a sweatshirt on and a hat on. So, okay, uh, okay. so I, I went I went the other way. Is that because you feel body shamed slightly by the modern? <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> I know. I didn't want to shame everybody else. That was the, oh, uh, that's very <laughs> kind of you. Yeah, that's very kind yeah. of you. Okay, well done. I always and there were lots um, of bass fishermen actually, which was interesting, but they weren't. Um, so it was yeah, a real seaside scene. But um. okay, okay. I would imagine topless fishing for bass with a lure is, is fairly risky. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, indeed. Now these these were quite chunky boys. I think you know they had a fair. Fair, fair, fair coating of fat. If they'd, uh, if they'd hooked themselves, they would have been. They, they weren't going to hit any vitals, certainly. So. Oh well, excellent. Just some, um, some modern body piercing taking place is fantastic. Okay, um, well, that's completely off track. What a fantastic place to start. But I think we're, I'm in danger of me doing my favourite trick, which is assuming that everybody who's listening knows you as well, and that's obviously not the case. Uh, we've known each other for a while via uh, various different writing endeavours, and. I would like you to give us a small introduction of who you are, why we're having a chat, and you don't need to go quite as far back as the cradle, but if you could give us a little sort of a, a quick whiz through for us, a montage of Patrick Galbraith. So I'm a journalist and author, um, and I write about all sorts of things, really. Just this morning, actually, I filed a piece on holidays and holiday culture and whether it's destroying rural Britain. Um, and then I write about food. I write about field sports. So I suppose where it kind of all started for me was writing pieces about fishing, actually, when I was at university. And then I ended up editing, uh, which I still do, a magazine called Shooting Times, um, which is a very old field sports publication, but a lot of conservation stuff in there. And it's a really interesting time to um, be at the helm of a, of a magazine like that, um, particularly when field sports is so under the spotlight. Um, and then from there, I wrote a book. I started writing this book about three years ago about 10 disappearing bird species and people trying to save them. Um, I became very aware that there was a lot of sort of deep knowledge out there that wasn't being tapped into. And mm -hmm. there were lots of people who I think were deeply frustrated and their voices weren't really being heard. Um, so I sort of set off around the country in a very roundabout way and ended up sleeping in lots of caves and under ditches and in sort of um, bed and breakfasts and sleeping in service stations, um, trying to see and hear these various birds, but also trying to meet these people and talking to poets and artists and musicians whose work is inspired by these birds. Um, because I suppose what I'm interested in is 
is sort of the way that that the country is always changing and the way that things are being lost and sort of you know how we see ourselves and i suppose i think like you tim i'm quite interested in um the conflict around conservation and i'm i'm sort of saddened by it and i'm also always cheered in one sense by actually how lots of people want the same thing um it's just that they come at things from very different angles so yeah. I suppose that was that was you know that was why and one thing always leads to another really um there are there are sort of lots of animal rights activists who i count as very great pals who i've met over the years through editing a field sports magazine and, and then through writing this book so it's a yeah i think writing and journalism as as you'll know very well is just wonderful because you meet so many different um people you do you do and there's some characters that pop up in the book the book's called in search of one last song Britain's disappearing birds and the people trying to save them. And there's a beautiful illustration of a lapwing on the front. Yes, that is right. That I actually, um, I had an interest. The guy who did that was very old. And I went to Cly in Norfolk, which is a sort of really popular holiday spot, actually talking about, you know, um, hordes of holidaymakers. And uh, all of the shops there, when I went there, had this guy's illustrations in the windows. And I thought that was really odd. And I said to the guy who runs the old bookshop there oh you've got Robert Gilmore in the window and he said oh yeah he died a couple of weeks ago so I think the illustration on my cover is actually the last cover that he did um, which is really quite an honor he was quite a remarkable apparently a very very nice man um, he had been a art teacher at a, at a school um, and then was a uh, was, was a was a painter latterly and, and a fantastic ornithologist so amazing amazing yeah lapwings enchanting birds um okay right so we've got an idea of of uh what you're into what you do um where did you grow up patrick can you just give us a couple of a couple of brief paras on that yeah so i grew up in scotland um a mix really of edinburgh and and dumfries and galloway so i suppose that's probably where i i sort of fell in love with birds and and with and with kind of I, there was at the start of my book there was an old lady who lived down the lane who I used to go and see a bit often actually when I had been shooting rabbits with my air rifle and she very old uh and has now died actually sadly very recently as well um and she told me often about the birds that used to be there that were no longer there um and I think that really sort of stuck with me so things like black grouse um and curlew and lapwings um peewits uh as they're called in that part of the world um so so yeah i think that from from an early age i was quite aware of things changing and even you know the the way that the rabbit population there um sort of fell away so there were parts of of Dumfrieshire where i would go as a as a young guy and shoot rabbits with my air rifle and you could shoot 15 in an afternoon and that would keep you in casserole for the next six months and yeah. um and it's and i spoke to a young guy there uh 14 year old quite recently and then he was very into um field sports and i said do you ever get up behind um kirkland to shoot rabbits with your air rifle and he said oh no there aren't any there anymore um so that's really fascinating just how the sort of you know, different generations and, and, and things kind of relate to each other and, the, the, you know, thinking about things that have been lost and change. Well, that's part of the problem with conservation uh, as well, because we have something is officially termed shifting baseline syndrome, mm, mm, um, yeah. uh, which uh, many, many listeners, I'm sure, will be aware of. And, I, and it's a really dangerous thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and, and science is starting to combat that, which is helpful. You know, we've been studying things long enough now that it doesn't really matter you know, what you remember as being plenty. 
because you know we can we can illustrate the the decline of species um in many different ways. But I won't I won't get bogged down in that right now. Um, <laughs> what I what I need to do, Patrick, is I, I need to take you through my magic portal, which sounds much more fun than it is. Um, in into another world which is more instantly malleable than this one and i believe we can change things for the better here as yeah. well but uh, you know it's an experiment uh, um, a conversational experiment that you can change three things within the world uh to do with food sorry it has to be about food uh, yeah yeah in some way everything's support. about food though right everything comes back to food so it's you know uh, in a, well, certainly in the world, I think in the world of conservation. In your world. <laughs> okay, I'm making it about food because it's called the Madam's Cast, and I'm all about food, um, and that's how I relate to everything. Uh, we could call it the, the, you know, I could also relate to it in a badly sort of stumbling around a few chords on a guitar kind of way, but that I find it harder to bring things back to that. So, um, <laughs> so let's go with food, if that's okay with yeah, you. I don't want to yeah. change the entire format of the whole podcast. Um, <laughs> bloody editors you're all the same um okay so we're going to go through the portal you get three things you can change we'll discuss them we'll link them back to uh conservation as much as we can and and environment as often happens in the madam's cast uh but that's what we're going to do and then we're going to come back out of that world and we've got a bit of fun at the end choosing a book a drink and a nomination of someone else to come on the pod. So, are you prepared for your inter-transitional uh, flow into a new universe? I am. I am. Let's do that. Let's okay. let's go on that trip. I wish I had like a snazzy sound effect, um, but I don't. So, okay, we're in. Patrick Galbraith, welcome to this new hyper malleable world. Um, what's the first thing that you would like to change about the world of food? So I think I was chatting the other day to a guy called Guy Shrubsole, who wrote a book called Who Owns England? And everybody at the moment seems to be getting very excited about um, public access to land. And there mm -hmm. are people I know who think that, you know, if the public are able to walk across a field, you know, the world is going to become a, a, an awful place. And, and uh, you know, their, their views are certainly interesting. And then on the flip side, you've got people like Guy Shrubsole, who have spent a lot of time campaigning um, for greater public access. And, you know, I was thinking that it wasn't that long ago that I was a sort of boy sitting by the phone trying to pluck up enough courage to call the local farmer to ask if I could go and shoot his rabbits. Um, and I got so much from that experience. I'd certainly cooked very badly at that stage in my life and possibly still do now. But um, I think if every child had the opportunity to go out and shoot a rabbit with an air rifle and uh, to catch fish and cook those fish, then they would sort of all start off in a far better place um, in terms of their relationship with food. And they would get a sort of rich understanding that lots of people don't have. So, so I think I'm not quite sure how you would uh, how you you would actually facilitate um, every child going off from their rifle to shoot a rabbit? Not least because there aren't enough rabbits in lots of places. But um, you know, if that was possible, I would love for that to happen. Also, I think worth mentioning there's a few vegetarian children around. That um, is true. That is true. That is true. And you could take them off to to to, to pick mushrooms. Yeah. Well, exactly. Exactly that. So okay. Um, of a non-magic, uh, strictly non-magic sort. For, um... <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> perhaps that's an experience everyone should have. I don't know. Yeah. Um, possibly not as a child. Um, actually, reading, I'm reading, I've read some some interesting literature on um, the use of psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms recently. And uh, it, it evokes a childlike state, apparently. So perhaps uh, it would be really utterly, utterly pointless giving it to Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Because they're What's not new? Even, 
they're not self ego yeah. obsessed enough for it to affect them. So um, anyway, um, massively off topic there. Okay, so Guy Shrubsoul, who owns England? So what we're getting at here, really, I think from you is a greater connection to where food comes from. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think the sort of three things that I would like to change are all connected in a sense. So it is very much um, that greater connection. And it's also, you know, I think it's a, it's a sort of respect really as well. So, um, you know, when you, when you spend all afternoon stalking rabbits with an air rifle and you don't actually get any, you come away with a far greater appreciation of the rabbit, not just in terms of, the, you know, when you actually do end up shooting a rabbit, you appreciate eating it more. Yeah. Um, but you appreciate the rabbit as a creature. And I think that's really important. I think we, we sort of, you know, there's nothing that takes away your respect for an animal, like only ever sort of encountering it, you know, in a, in a uh, you know, plastic packaging um, on your local supermarket shelf. So I think, you know, if people can kind of get up there and experience you know, what wonderful creatures they are and how in many ways their senses are, are greater than ours, um, I think, you know, it would give you a tremendous connection, as you, as you say. Rabbits are a fascinating story, actually, aren't they? Because, I mean, you know, I get a bit huffy with people when they start spouting this nonsense at me because, you know, I mean, when do you want to start? But uh, technically a non-native species, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's I, people, there are lots of people who will tell you an awful lot about lots of things who don't really sort of seem to know very much about what they're talking about at all. And I think... Um, <laughs> And they're not all journalists. They're not all journalists, often. But it's um, I think it's quite complicated. So you know, I'm I you know, I've, I've I've spent a lot of my life thinking about rabbits. But I think there's a bit of debate as to whether they were brought here by the Romans or by the Normans. Yeah. And I think is there evidence that they actually were here at one point, um, maybe sort of pre Ice Age. Um, so I don't I think, think there's any evidence of them in the British fossil record, is there? Is that I, I look? I'm straying into your territory here. I don't, I don't, I don't know. But as I say, I just think it's more complicated than um, yeah. yeah. And that exactly. whole idea of native and non-native and so on is a really yeah. interesting, interesting thing. And you know, I think, I think often actually, and this is sort of slightly off topic, but the way that we talk about muntjac deer, and in my book I explore this, um, we sort of don't really give muntjac deer much respect at all, and we blame them for destroying nightingale habitat and so on, uh, which they do do, but, you know, other deer, good old British deer, do that as well. Yeah. Um, and when you think of good old British deer like roe deer, well, you know, we killed most of the deer in England, so we had to bring deer in from Germany to sort of make up for, for yeah. what we'd, you know, so the extent to which... Uh, you know, roe deer are really British at all, and and you know the extent to which muntjac are, are kind of dirty foreigners is quite an interesting thing. I was I talk about in the book that um, there was a piece written in the Daily Mail about muntjac, um, and you know was how it, many there are, and, and sorry, carry on. So I was going to say, was it balanced and informative? Well, indeed, it was. It was. I mean, it was one of the few articles that. Uh, all sort of pieces of literature out there, if you can call it that, that manages to come to any sort of conclusion about how many muntjac there are in the UK, because okay. most people who know anything about them say that actually there's no way of knowing. But anyway, this guy writes this piece and all of these comments beneath the line um, from readers say, you know, how clever this writer is in using muntjac as a sort of metaphor for everything that's wrong with British society and immigration in Britain. And it's a kind of really bleak but fascinating insight i think into how we relate to um animals and the idea of them being native or or non-native yeah it's a funny one because we've drawn those lines haven't we and they don't know they're just getting on 
with surviving in the best way that they can. Uh, some of them are thriving, some of them are struggling, and some of those are created by, you know, by each other. You know, if one species thrives, well, for example, um, humans, other species um, are seriously exactly, yeah. threatened by them. You need look no further than industrial fishing and um, uh, and whatnot to, to prove that one. But okay, fine. So I've got number one almost clear in my head here. Yeah. And the rabbit is a great talisman for it because you're right. There is something, you know, it, trying to catch, you know, or hunt rabbits can be exhausting and frustrating. Um, and at other I times, also think there's, yeah, I also think it's funny because we want people to love food, but I yeah. also think that it's important to, to sort of, it's important to lift your hands up to your face and, and smell the sort of sweet stink of rabbit guts on them. There's some, there's a kind of, there's a, there's a richness um in that and there's an experience to be had there you know you don't want to put people off rabbit for life but um the kind of sanitization of our relationship with meat i think is quite a dangerous and negative thing because you know no matter how icky your experience has been with that rabbit it's certainly nowhere near as icky as you know farmed salmon or um intensively farmed pork or or, or whatever so it just makes you think about those things 100 percent hundred percent i've done quite a bit of teaching people how to um skin and gut and cook rabbit and it's interesting the transformation that can occur Mm, uh in mm. in in just a one day sort of or half a morning really that process Um, uh, not only the transformation of something fairly woe begotten and and weary and bloody uh, into something delicious and tasty as well as you know a usable pelt and other things but um yeah okay fine well I've got number I'm, I'm happy with number one it's a little bit it's a little bit vague but it, you know it's crystalline enough um, that I think we get it um and, and what's your favorite ra- rabbit recipe then well actually I made in my in my book um it starts off with rabbit and rabbit casserole and then I went to see a poet a guy called Tom Pickard really really good poet actually if anybody's interested in the wind um and I mean I think I think he writes about birds better than anybody writing about birds in Britain today but he's got a poem about a rabbit pie so I made him a rabbit pie when I went to see him um and that's very slow I mean I, I think when I was young where I went wrong with rabbit was not cooking it slowly enough you know I think wild rabbit you really do want to you know you can you can do great things with it if you cook it slowly um so probably actually just a just a rabbit pie recipe there's a very good Hugh Fernley Whittingstall uh rabbit pie recipe which is uh keeps things simple I think it's just beer and slow cooked rabbit um and it yeah it's a good it's a good dish Amazing. Um, so I just being a chef uh, for so long of my life, I do have to just ask, uh, is that a hot water crust, short crust? I, mean, <laughs> I think that's uh, I think I think that's um, that's, you know, shop bought pastry that you sort of roll out okay. and, and stick okay. on top. So it takes a hell of a long time, that recipe, without getting into without getting into pastry making. It's not that's oh, not an avenue I've explored. That's, that's not a that's not a criticism. Um, I, I don't have any issue with Just Roll or, or other brands of pastry, provided they don't contain any palm oil. I'm happy to let that slide. OK, um, fine. So I think we can depart from point number one and, and mm. saunter merrily over to point number two, if you're ready with it, if you've got I am. Barrel two fully. So again, this is going to be kind of nebulous and uh, vague, I'm sure. But you know, I was at the weekend. I was uh, trying to buy some plums, 
And no, that's not actually true. I had to buy some plums. I said to the man selling the plums that I wanted to buy some green gauges. And he said to me, well, you know, you'll have to come back in a month or whatever, because, you know, green gauges come after plums. Um, and I sort of realized at that point, you know, that in theory, I should be somebody who's sort of really knows my seasons. And, you know, I'm not bad on most of them, but there are kind of, you know, little lacunas in there. And I think if we could all think more seasonally, um, we would be in a much better place in terms of our relationship with food. And I, I sort of say that on one hand, just because I really like food and buying a fig um, out of season is just the most sort of tragic experience. And likewise, buying asparagus out of season, you get these kind of little flaccid, thin um, spears. Um, so I think, you know, starting from the rabbit, if people could then get a sense of the seasons and when mushrooms are growing and when things are harvested, um, we, would, we would be in a better place. Wow. I mean, that is, uh, that's a biggie, isn't it? And because I'm, I often think to myself, is our detachment from the seasonality, is that causal or indicative? of the problems with food production. And mm. I think, I think it's probably it's bo- it's both. both. Yeah. 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 It sort yeah. of goes round and round in a, in a circle. Um, and you know, there's some analogies that are overused, but uh, one of my favorites is the strawberry thing. And it's like, well, no one wanted a strawberry at Christmas. No one sat down and said, look, I'm refused to come to your supermarket <laughs> unless, unless, unless I can buy a very wooden, beautiful, but flavorless um, strawberry on the 23rd of December, I'm not coming. I mean, no one's ever said that. And, and but I kind of think... Mind-boggling. Well, which, which is really interesting is that um, in, in the book, as well as a poet, I go and see a lady called Katrina Porteous, really, really nice lady in Northumberland. And she spoke to me at length about there were fishermen who she spent a lot of time with in Beedenall, where she lives. And you know they always knew that it was time to paint their boats again because the swallows had come back and the corn crakes were calling in the night again and there are no corncrakes there anymore um at all but you know so the birds are sort of harbingers of seasons changing and in a sense we can sort of tell the time through birds and and um we can think about progression and birds as being markers and food has the same sort of power um and if you detach kind of food and seasonality then it, it ceases to do that. And the whole year just becomes this kind of mush. So there's something very nice about, oh, it's, you know, it's strawberry time or it's green gauge time. Um, and do, do, you, do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, yeah, 100%. And, uh, and it's quite, it's very sensual, if that's the right word. Um, you'll be able to put me right if it's not. But it's when you walk into the kitchen, and there's a bowl of freshly picked summer strawberries on the side. And you can smell them before you walk through the door. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. definitely. Yeah, there's all of these things buried very deep and, and sort of scents and sounds and things. Um, and I think those are quite those are quite important, those kind of rhythms of the year that we've become detached from. And I, I sort of think that in a sense, you know, it's a little bit like cars. You know, it used to be that you would go and buy a car and you would just take whatever interior they had. Whereas now it's like, well, do you want red seats and blue seats and, you know, and, and what kind of air conditioning system do you want and so on? Um, I mean, I've never actually bought a car, but I imagine that's, that's the case. And it's, a, it's a little bit like, it's a little bit like food. You know what I mean? It, it's a kind of, it's a kind of like capitalist thing that you can have whatever you want, whenever you want. Yeah. Um, and, and that's kind of where we've, where we've, gone wrong i think we need a bit more kind of delayed gratification and that's what seasonality um you know requires us to have 
Yeah, and gives us far, far greater appreciation when it does come into season. It's almost a sort of, it's a kind of the tantric food theory, really. Yeah, you, yeah. You, the longer you wait uh, for your asparagus or your strawberry or your green gauge, yeah. uh, the, the, the sweeter it will yeah. be. You know, it's like, I mean, literally and, and sort of on a more spiritual level. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I get excited, you know, me and, you know, I get excited about shooting rabbits as well. But I also get I get equally, if not more excited about picking chanterelle or winter chanterelle or porcini yeah. mushrooms in the woods. Equally as excited about, um, you know, when I see the small fry or swimming at the beach yesterday and the, and the small fry were in near the beach. And I was thinking immediately, oh, the mackerel will be close behind. Yeah, us. You know, yeah, and, and, yeah. And I wonder about this, you know, that's knowledge that is slowly drifting Steady going. away. From I had a really yeah. interesting, um, um, there's a friend of mine who writes about carpets um, and she is currently in Georgia and um, she's starting to put together a book on talking to people about their knowledge of herbs and so on um, and mushrooms and things like that. Because you know, she was saying as this society there becomes wealthier, people sort of no longer really want to actually have this knowledge. You know, this knowledge becomes part of a kind of old fashioned um, and less affluent way of living, which I think is really interesting. And there's uh, on the same theme, there's a guy I know who runs a Italian restaurant in London and uh, it's, he claims, or he says, I'm sure it's right, that it's um, London's oldest um, uh, family owned Italian restaurant. And he said when his father came here, uh, his father would serve beef and pork and so on. And he said that, you know, I want to start serving game. And his father said, why do you want to serve game to these gentlemen around Kensington? Gentlemen don't eat game. They don't eat foraged mushrooms. You know, they want yeah. beef and pork and so on. And I think that's quite an interesting distinction in Italy. that You've got this kind of, you know, peasant food and foraged food and hunted food. Um, and then you've got this, you know, beef and you can have it whenever you want and however you want. Yeah, that's an interesting one, actually, because the Italian food movement, that whole thing you're talking about there, the cucina povera, is all mm -hmm. about you know, it's something I love. I am deeply in love with that. It's seen, I think, in this country as kind of slightly folksy, a bit dirty, slightly embarrassing. You know, you shouldn't be scurrying about in the dirt trying to find your food. Yeah. You, you know, that's a terrible way of doing it. You should be going to the global megacorp over there and getting your bowl of gloop. Yeah, and it's, yeah. Uh, I, I, I feel like I'm trapped in some sort of horrific Wellsian uh, nightmare sometimes <laughs> but then I, I think maybe I'm taking it a bit too far and I try and rein myself back in again um, but I, I don't think I don't think you should criticize people but I also think I agree with the chef there that you should also give people the opportunity to try something you know forage something wild something yeah more, something less bland and, and normal um, mm. okay amazing so seasonality huge 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 subject I mean, again, it's just really, it's about connection, isn't it? It's the same as the rabbits, really. It's about connection and how we, how we reconnect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely right. And it's a simple thing is of taking yourself off to a pick your own fruit farm. Yeah, yeah. It will, will in and of itself be a really great, you know, experience. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, unless it's a, you know, pick your own gooseberry farm because they're quite prickly. <laughs> uh, that that can end badly. Uh, okay, okay. So, right. So I remember connection. getting getting stung by wasps actually on multiple occasions. I picked your own farm as a child, so it's you know it's a yeah risk. It is a risk. Risk it out there. Risk. It is a risk. I got stung by a bee the other day. <laughs> 
It's funny, isn't it, getting stung by because because you sort of think that actually, oh well, you know, when you're a child, getting stung by a bee is quite a big thing, and then as an adult, you're fine. But no, I got stung by a bee actually not that long ago, and it does it does hurt. It does hurt. Yeah, my son Isaac stood on a a sort of ground dwelling bumblebee, uh, I think, at some point in his life, and he remembers that like vividly. Really? I had to pull the sting out of his foot. Yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe that's sort of reconnecting. It's like it's like hunting rabbits or something. There's something there's some good to be uh, to be you know to be found in that. Well, yeah, and it's you know you're absolutely right. So if someone said to you, right, can you just lie down in these nettles? They're going to sting your forearms a bit, and there's some thistle there that's going to scrape the back of your neck. Could you just lie down there and do that? You'd say no, sod off. But if you're having to lie down in that, you know rough ground because you're trying to sight on a rabbit or you're trying to yeah. reach, reach some blackberries um it becomes totally unimportant right yeah 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 no exactly 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 mm, I agree. interesting interesting okay right 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 number three patrick come on let's 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 not leave you there um stuck with points number one and two thinking about them too deeply i want to hear point number three from you. so number three is is much more specific but it's quite connected um and it just struck me yesterday i was talking to somebody who said they'd had a really tasteless salmon mousse um at a lunch on saturday and we sort of got into talking about salmon and i just think that like salmon is such a, a sort of talisman of of what of, of you know so much of what's wrong um with our food culture and you know if occasionally you have conversations about salmon and, and sort of somebody in the group says oh you know salmon uh, salmon's awful and, and you know you inevitably have lots of people who say why and then when they get into the conversation they say god i never knew that um so i think if we sort of you know, if we got rid of farmed salmon it would be a really positive thing and it would force people to think very deeply about other food choices that they make Mm. um and and also just i think as somebody who has eaten salmon that they've caught themselves and obviously that's a sort of tremendous privilege and not something that um, everybody um can do um but but you know you sort of through putting these things in cages you lose respect for that creature um and i was just i was reading last year a book called salmon by mark kalansky who wrote that book cod um and he talks Mm -hmm. about the native americans who would paint pictures of salmon onto stones and then they would rub those stones to um to sort of give themselves the the various powers that the salmon have as they see it so um you know so sort of vitality and energy and endurance and so on um and just the the way that they think about salmon is 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 incredible and we've managed to completely kind of reverse that process by just you know sticking them in in little crates out at sea and obviously there's all sorts of ecological issues that um happen when you do that but i think just that that respect as much as anything is something that we um you know i mean when they dammed the salilo falls in in the states to um in terms of creating um uh, hydro power um Mm. native americans there stood and wept um while american politicians stood and applauded um because they saw it as progress and and the native americans just saw it as so deeply disrespectful to these salmon yeah. Um, and that's that's such an interesting thing, I think. So I think no more uh, farm salmon would be a really positive thing, and not least because it doesn't taste particularly good. I don't think either, which is important. A lot of it is very, very, very fatty, flaccid, mm. flavorless. I'm using all the f's. Other consonants are available. Um, uh, I, it for me, it's a talisman of all things horrendously industrialized food. Uh, mm. and and mm. there are people out there that will advocate for it 
um, almost endlessly. Um, well, I mean, it's really interesting. And I, I sort of, in, again, in my book, I tried to do this. I didn't want to... I think it's so easy to say, for example, oh, no more farm salmon. But then you look at like the employment. It, you know, do you know what I mean? The, the further you explore an issue, the more complicated you realise it is. Yeah. Um, and, but we and made that problem, didn't we? We made. That oh, we problem. did. Yeah. But that's but that's why these issues are so interesting. I think is because yeah. you go and you talk to people employed in these communities and so on. And um, it's sort of it's it's easy to come up with uh, with simple sort of right we won't do any more of this and we won't mm. do any more of that but mm. yeah as you say we we have made that problem but there's such a complicated kind of culture now that surrounds these things mm. um, I mean even I mean our relationship with salmon throughout time is fascinating that like when we used to um, net the salmon in the states and you'd have um, sort of essentially like Chinese slave labor and they would can them you know in the canning plants um, but the waste was just so much that they would just essentially be throwing salmon out the back so you'd have these huge piles of dead salmon and again the Native Americans there found this sort of deeply disrespectful um, so that's yeah it's, it's fascinating throughout time how we've treated salmon and, and sort of you know commercialized salmon yeah it, yeah so yeah just on that whole spiritual level again it's just massively disrespectful and then also salmon then becomes available all the time becomes less than important to everyone becomes this bland homogenized thing um that is just available i think my my awakening to that was when i first spotted uh value smoked salmon trimmings for sale and and i just thought uh, in a way, that's good because I like the fact that we're not wasting it. But salmon should be, you know, this is something I remember my granny getting terribly excited about a tin of pink salmon. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You know, whereas now you wouldn't, you, you just wouldn't, you wouldn't hear anyone getting excited about a tin of salmon. Um, uh, Some of the stuff I made, um, I was review when I so when I was re reading that book, um, Salmon, the Kalansky book, I was reviewing it for the Spectator, and there's a recipe in it, um, which is the first um, recipe, the first cookbook written by. Um, an African-American chef. It's like 1900 or something, I think, or, or maybe late 19th century. And he has this recipe in it where you essentially take tinned salmon and you mix it up with white bread um, and then you chill it and you sort of put it out so it's a kind of salmon mold and yeah. then you serve it on ice and on a lettuce leaf. And, and I made it and it is absolutely horrendous. Like horrendous. <laughs> <laughs> But just uh, so interesting in terms of how I, I, can you relate to that as a recipe idea? Is that the sort of thing you'd have seen, like you know, in the same period in London? That sort of salmon mold. I'm slightly horrified by the the idea of of salmon. I mean, you could make salmon or any sort of. Fish. I mean, the fish roe would work incredibly well blended with some bread. You know, and then you, yeah, you of... kind of boil it. You boil it almost like a pudding, you know, oh and my then God. and then you chill it right down. That I just it's fascinating the extent to which um, I read. I read the other day, very off topic, but I read um, a, a breakfast menu from a London restaurant in like eighteen ninety five. Um, Any mutton amazing. chops on it? I, I can't remember mutton chops. Um, so um, lots of um, uh, deviled kidneys were on there. Deviled nice. pig's kidneys, and you think starting the day with a deviled pig's kidney is like that is that is serious. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, and it's also, you know, I, but that's that's because of the implication that we put on breakfast. I think, you know, uh, uh, lots of people live their lives at different times of day. I mean, you know, that I remember when I was first working at St. John's and the guys were coming in uh, past you from the Smithfield meat market and they'd finish their day, these Steve doors or whatever, by sort of market porters by by kind of 10 o'clock in the morning. 
all the meat trade had been done and they were they were off to do you know whatever it was they were going to go and do and you probably do want yeah, to yeah. Play, plate of kidneys at nine o'clock if you but also just being at billings i mean no i remember I, mean, I wasn't actually well no i say i wasn't working i was working i was writing a feature but um going to billingsgate and you've arrived there at five and by the time the breakfast cafe opens it's like six so you sit down um to have some fish have some kippers or whatever yeah. uh you know at seven o'clock and you feel like you've done the whole day it's quite an amazing um it's an amazing, it's an incredibly unhealthy way of life, I guess, for those guys who are just, you know, drinking cans of Red Bull. And then, uh, but yeah, fascinating. And I suppose all of that's going really. I mean, it's, they keep on talking about Smithfield amalgamating with Billingsgate and so on, the new Covent Garden. Um, yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, everything changes and moves on, and that's that is part of life, and that's quite right. But I, I lament some of the things we're losing, definitely. But I, my my main argument there is. Um, you know, kidneys for breakfast. Don't knock it till you've tried. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you could do like a like that film, Super Size Me, but just you know, a year of eating like a kind of Victorian gentleman to see to see what impact it it had on you. You probably need a whole new wardrobe, and, you know, get a huge yeah. moustache and that kind of thing. It could be great. It could be and great. Someone, someone to carry you around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. A lot of. Yeah. Are you all right, Tim? Yes, the old gout's giving me a bit of jip. But I'll have yeah. another bottle of port, please. Yeah. Um, I suppose it depends on what Victorian. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you were well, um, if you had, no, yeah, exactly, or if you had absolutely nothing at all, it would be so. Um, what are you living yeah. on there, Tim? Oh, mostly soot and some river yeah. water. <laughs> oh, okay, excellent. excellent. I do wonder. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Whether people did think in terms of like variety of food, or whether it was just eating, you know, what you could, what you could get. I mean, I remember there's a Hardy Thomas Hardy short story where they eat a lot of um bits of bacon boiled in water with cabbage um mm. yeah mm. i don't know interesting maybe interesting. not that well, bad i don't know bacon's a bacon's another talisman of mine that I, it sort of represents all the things that i i think have gone slightly wrong but um this is your episode not mine so i'll shut up uh and uh, and and look at this again so okay um so point three it was quite bold wasn't it was it get rid of farm salmon yeah, I think so. But I mean, more as a launching off point, really, um, okay. because of the things that it makes us uh, think about. I think that's really I, I met. Well, not I met. I'm friends with a, a very nice, um, maybe a slightly naive um, vegan friend of mine who says much to people's annoyance that the reason he's vegan is because when he goes to people's houses and they've cooked food and he says, no, sorry, I'm vegan. It forces them to think about their own food choices. Um, and I've written about this guy on a few occasions because he'll sit there having his avocado butter with palm oil in it and so on. And I, you know, it's a sort of, it's a really interesting thing. I think it's one of those instances where yeah, I've got a lot of respect for people who are vegan, but also it's a way sort of of actually simplifying a very very complex problem and and sort of trying to find a simple solution um, where you know the, the the detail is just so complicated often. Yeah, people are always looking to cut corners for easy, easy access to sort of um, a better world. And it, it, unfortunately, there isn't one, you know, I mean, you've got to learn and need to know the stuff that you need to know. And that's not your fault. It's because of the way the food system's been built now, lots of other stuff is pointed at you that isn't necessarily um, the right thing. But to it's eat. just yeah, the way we, I mean, I used to have a um, Hungarian neighbor and he would often tell me about they used to keep a pig in their bathroom and mm -hmm. then slaughter it before <laughs> Christmas time. Yeah, I think because I think they didn't have it for that long, but they would keep it in the bathroom and then they'd slaughter it in the bath. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, you're not going to persuade people to do that now in this country. I mean, I don't even think it would be legal, actually, either. Which is so, But you know what I mean? It's just, uh, yeah, 
Yeah. Well, I've what, definitely got slaughtered. I've definitely too, got slaughtered in the bath. A in the bath before, yeah. But no, we're too busy as well. You know, when you come home from work, you've got no time to slaughter a pig in your bathroom. I don't think anymore. No, no, it is. Yeah, and it is time consuming. I mean, if you've ever dealt with a freshly killed pig, there's a lot of stuff you've got to do quite quickly. Um, yeah, so you don't yeah. Think, like you've got to cool the blood and agitate it to take out some of the white cells so that it doesn't split when you try and make your black pudding. Really, it's fascinating, good. isn't it? It's so complicated. You've got the offal to deal with straight away yeah. while it's nice and fresh, and then you've got your ham to make and your bacon to cure and all of that stuff. I mean, it, you know, it's mm. easily a day to sort a whole pig out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With modern, you know, with modern machinery, I can't imagine how long it took before you when you didn't have a mincer. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really um, interesting. I suppose there's programs like Victorian Farm and so on. There's great programs. Kind of I'm not going to do it that. in my bathroom though. No, well, I think your wife probably she would she'd have something to say if you. <laughs> I wasn't, yeah, I mean, apart from anything else, there'd be kids would be knocking on the door. Can we use the loo? <laughs> no, this is, meat, this, is, this is a meat production plant. You can't yeah. come in here and defecate. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> All analogies, if forced too far, yeah. will fall apart. Um, right. Okay. Brilliant. Patrick, what a great amble through some fantastically poignant points and, and deeply thoughtful stuff. Um, delivered in nice uh, nice little sound bites for us thanks very much um okay so the three things we're going to change about this world uh mm. is we're going to improve people's connection to where their food comes from we are going to couple that with some seasonal awareness the two go hand in hand and we're going to get rid of farm salmon as a way of sort of underlining all of those all of that yeah yeah yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Exactly. Okay, I've got you. I think it's, you know, that is definitely going to make what I would describe as a better world. Mm. Um, and obviously there would be some problems, but that doesn't matter in Madam's Cast land because they're all, they all just get fixed magically. There are no problems, yeah. Stuff. Exactly. Only solutions. I think someone said that once. Um, okay, well, I'm back to mundane, normal earth, I'm afraid, version 1.0. Um, we're going back in there now. Uh, but to soften the blow you know, and gently ease you out of Madam's Cast land and into um, into the normal humdrum day to day, you get to choose another three things. You get to choose uh, a book, a food book, please, um, that you would read in a desert island type scenario, although it doesn't have to be a desert island. Um, it could just be a situation where you're only allowed one food book for a bit. Uh, something to drink while you're perusing it and nominate somebody else alive dead real fictitious willing or otherwise to come on the madam's cast so i think um when i was young i used to go to a italian delicatessen quite a lot and there was this huge sort of female but avuncular figure nonetheless who would sort of you know loiter around the cheese counter and i um found out later that her name was clarissa dixon wright and she was a and she was a chef of note um and i found out a little bit after that that we had some of her books at home so i can't even i mean you you probably know i can't even remember which book it is now but there's one where she goes camping and there's the uh there's the motorbike in it and uh and it's just such a brilliant sort of as much as anything it's the little vignettes i think um and i sort of i think that was a, a great moment really of britain kind of rediscovering some of what was lost maybe yeah. um so i i, I mean it's a, it's a wonderful book and obviously those two people are dead now um, and I went up to her uh, a few years after that when I saw her there again, and I said to her how much I enjoyed her book, and she said very 
sweetly thank you very much that meant a lot so i think really that would have to be the book that i would um that i would take although as i say i'm not sure exactly which one of the books it is it's got a blue cover um and it's got a fantastic tongue recipe in it i think oh people don't eat enough tongue no they don't they really don't and actually i've been on a waiting list at a butcher's in norfolk to get a tongue the tongue list apparently um okay. for about six months now so uh, i've got a couple of smoked stags tongues oh really? in, what are they like the are, are they nice are they good yeah well i, I always oh beware buy beware i mean i always say you know if it's something i've salted and brined and smoked you know it probably wasn't going to be that great if i hadn't done that right but they, yeah. they, they, yeah. they do they do have the the lovely you know the undertone of of stag is there and they have uh, a lovely sort of piss uh that sort of you know no not quite not piss quite and sweat uh, thing, no <laughs> no <laughs> No, I wouldn't go that far. I would say sort of complex, irony, mineralist, mm, mm, you know, yeah, kind of thing yeah, going yeah, on. Yeah, 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 and yeah. and then they have that lovely spongy tonginess about them. Yeah, they really, I mean, tongue is just... And I also think, I mean, we eat a lot of... Um, cold tongue in sort of slices which is fine but but you know but but hot tongue hot tongue with mustard is really um it's really yeah amazing so thing. i got into terrible trouble um at river cottage once on valentine's night for putting hot tongue and heart on the menu <laughs> <laughs> that's quite funny which was i thought was hilarious and some people made uh some sort of reference or claims about that being inappropriate and i was like well look mate you know that's up to you <laughs> my restaurant i'm doing it um, I've, ne- I've never got on with heart actually I, I must i must explore that more I've, I've only had it a couple of times and it's not really blown me away um mm. the way that tongue does so i've got it yeah 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 it's a very different organ um yeah you know yeah. much you know like i'll the get that thing. Yeah, get go for it. Yeah, well, I, I can cook. I can maybe I could cook you hot. We could. Yeah, I'll come up. So you're only like 15 hours up the road, so it's worth uh, worth well, worthwhile. You, you put know. it on now. I'll be there for uh, two in the morning or something. Yeah, perfect. No drama at all. I mean, you know, you could get the train up, have some, have some, uh, have some kidneys for breakfast when you when you arrive, <laughs> and we take it from there. Okay, so Clarissa Dickinson, right? And you're going to leave it up to me to research exactly which one. Which, which one of this? Yeah. 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 Fine. Yeah. Okay, I can do that. I got two or three of them downstairs in the kitchen, I think. Um, and, okay, well, you need to give me a drink you're going to drink while you peruse that. So I think uh, what I would go with is, 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 and I think Clarissa would think this was appropriate, would be um, Tio Pepe. So oh. sort of, yeah, relatively affordable um, sherry, very nice, cold. Uh, and I, I had a funny experience. I took Tio Pepe around to somebody's house and they said, this is mum's friend. She's here for lunch as well. And it was Nigella Lawson. And Nigella Lawson really approved of the fact that I bought some Tio Pepe. But that was about the only pleasant thing, you know, the whole lunch. She was a, she was a really uh, interesting lady. And we got on to talking about ratting with terriers that she disapproved of massively. Um, so, so yeah. But so, so Tio Pepe, it gets Nigella Lawson's approval. I think it would get Clarissa Dixon Wright's approval. And it certainly gets my approval. So that's, that's what I would take. Okay, um, fantastic. Um, wow, I mean, you lead, you do lead some life, don't you, with these literary, you know, famous folk that you just seem to randomly bump into <laughs> after ratting um, with terriers. It's it's a it's a diverse world out there. It's, uh, yeah, it's <laughs> it certainly is. It certainly is. Um, uh, I would much rather that you ratted um, with terriers than sprinkled the world with poison. Um, that yeah, would be, no, indeed, indeed, it's a really interesting question actually, particularly around like secondary poisoning of raptors and so on. Oh God, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of that goes on. Um, well, anything you know, and and a lot of it undeliberate as well. I think you know, the more and more 
the, the the toxicity of stuff that we've been sprinkling about the planet, you know, for our own ill-gotten gains, is mm. going to come back and haunt us in more and more ways as we as we move into the the future. But there we go. Oh God, I'm so miserable sometimes. I should cheer up. Um, okay, Clarissa Dickinson Wright, T.O. Pepe. Dixon Wright, Dixon, 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 Dixon. Sorry, I've, I've corrected it. T.O. Pepe. I mean, this is starting to sound like a who done it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay you who are you going to nominate uh to come on the man well i think you probably know i think you probably know him um john wright john oh. wright foraging has he been on he's probably been on it he hasn't he hasn't but you would you know that because you've obviously listened to all of listen to all of them <laughs> exactly exactly no he's he's a he's a very good guy actually um so he's uh, very interesting i mean his knowledge in terms of foraging is 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 superb and his ability to find stuff like when you know most of us would think that there's nothing out there to be found, yeah. Um, I think that's really quite cool, and it's sort of again, there's that thing of, of that sort of deep knowledge and um, and and just you know realizing that there's so much more to the you know lots of people know how to pick mushrooms and so on, and you know um, know when sort of you know cherries are out there and wild strawberries, but yeah, he does seem to be able to find things you know January, February, March. Um, and also seaweed. I'd like to hear him talking more about seaweed because that's something that I would like to explore more. Well, and we, we just had a bit of a chat about seaweed um, with another forager that came on the pod, a really interesting guy actually called Jeff Dan, um, who is the author of a book called Edible Mushrooms and more recently a book called Edible Plants, um, within which he's included uh, all the genre of, uh, of seaweed available to forage uh, in Northern Europe and uh, told a bit of the history of them. He's fascinating, huge encyclopedic knowledge of plants and seaweeds. Um, well worth a listen to that episode. Yeah, um, that I sh- yeah, yeah. I'd like to know more about the history of eating seaweed in Britain, I think. It's, and also just, you know, the ways in which it's been used for other, other you know, brushing, brushing teeth. Is that true? Did the Romans use seaweed to brush their teeth or is that, was that nonsense? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it could be one of those misunderstood mosaics, couldn't it? Yeah, actually, yeah. actually, it was. It wasn't that. It was a hedgehog on a stick. It yeah. just looked. It looked like bladder rack, but it wasn't. You know, I saw um, a hedgehog uh, two nights ago, which was a real pleasure because you don't see them very often anymore. So. You don't. You don't. That's that's true. That well, that's probably um, secondary poisoning related, isn't it? Slug pellets didn't that do for all the hedgehogs? Yeah, I think whole combination of habitat and badgers and poisons and so on. But um, I mean, also, uh, I spent. Um, I, I was walking back from the pub, and then I then spent about two hours reading about people eating hedgehog. It's fascinating. Really fascinating. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. And you sort of cook it in a fire or whatever. Really quite interesting. But anyway. Fascinating. Well, if you cook it in a fire, it's only so long before someone on Instagram starts doing it again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think I think you're probably not, I'm not, you know, endorsing uh, doing that. I think you'll probably be breaking all sorts of laws if you did that. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, but it's occasionally breaking the odd law can be a good thing. Um, but definitely not in the case of eating hedgehogs. So I think they should be they should be left left to their own road devices. Roadkill, roadkill. Well, that's a whole different conversation. Yeah, pre-minced, pre-minced hedgehog is always an interesting option. Well, Patrick Galbraith, what a fantastic contribution you've made to the digital archive that is the Madams Cast. Thank you very much. No, no, not at all. Thanks for coming on. Um, one more time then for with you know for good luck. Let's have a chat quickly uh, what's your book called uh you've read it it's for the benefit of the listeners Patrick. for the benefit of the listener. um, uh, in search of one last song um britain's disappearing birds and the people trying to save them and it's out with harper collins uh, very nicely illustrated by an irish illustrator called robert vaughan so it's out now in hardback it's 
brilliant. I am furious with you for writing such a great book first time out of the traps. Um, you know, that's that's irritating, uh, you know, for sure. Uh, but I really am enchanted with it. I, I really enjoyed reading it. I'm looking forward to rereading it. I do that a lot with books that I liked. Um, there's a really great bit for me where you're, you seem to be on a day out in Manchester with some um yeah 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 really good guy a, a guy who's just deeply passionate about lap wings and yeah, i suppose yeah. it gives a gives a real flavor of the, it's interesting a lot of people have really enjoyed that um so his father and grandfather and great-grandfather were dockers um and he sort of you know this is a place that is very much sort of his place and the place that he grew up in but it's changed completely so media cities come there and it just really struck me um when he said to me that when he was a boy, he said there were boys who came here from all over the world on boats and, and the ship canal we were on the Manchester ship canal was connected to the rest of the world um, through, you know, trade and through these boats. And he said, and now the only thing that connects the ship canal to the rest of the world um, are the birds that migrate here. And I thought that was just so fascinating. That's wow. sort of the, the way that his sense of place and his sense of identity in some ways um, is, is kind of built up by these birds and his relationship with these birds. It's a fascinating book. It's beautifully written from the point of view of yourself and from lots of other uh, people involved with these birds that are fast vanishing from our landscape. Uh, it's a fantastic effort, Patrick. I applaud you. And I'm sure that won't be uh, the best award you get for the book. <laughs> no, no, That's nobody's... all that matters, though. That's what no, I was the... thinking when I was writing it, just so long as Tim likes it. <laughs> Oh, well, that's good. That's flattering my ego nicely. Thank you very much. Well, you can get um, it, uh, because people always ask me, as oh, where can you get it from? You can get it, go down to Waterstones, um, or you can get it online in, in lots of places. But, you know, why not support your local bookshop? Get down there and, um, and get a copy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, unfortunately, that would be impossible where I live, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a big fan Inverness. of world, world of books and other things. So uh, that's uh, that's a wonderful thing. I'm a bit disappointed I had to buy a copy, but hey, I suppose all writers need to need to earn. We need pound. to eat. Yeah, exactly. We can't, we can't exactly. just forage. <laughs> Foraging for words within yeah. the wisdom miasma of the world. Okay. Patrick, great to chat. Thanks so much for coming Thank on. Thank you so much. Um, I'll get in touch with John Wright and see if I can drag him on the cast at some point. Um, I might, while I do that, ponder the merits of some Tio Pepe and, and flick, through, flick through a few old cookery books at the same time. Um, nice one, pal. Have a, have a great rest of your day and, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you very much. Cheers, matey. Bye.